Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and, and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Claire Bottini. And I'm your co-host, Laura Munoz. And today we are here with Benjamin Soriol. Thank you for being here, Benjamin. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So Ben, you are a master's student in biology. Can you tell us a bit more of what is your research and what led you there? Yeah, so I do research in uh, Dr. Hugh Henry's lab um, in terrestrial ecosystem ecology. So the ecosystem I work on is called an old field. Uh, so once once a farm comes out of production, uh, normally it starts in this region specifically, it starts getting taken back over by uh, uh, flowers and grasses and eventually woody species like trees and bushes. So an old field is the stage between farm and forest uh, while it's just starting to get taken over. Um, so in that ecosystem, I study nitrogen dynamics um, and the two drivers of these dynamics in my ecosystem are global change. Uh, so nitrogen deposition and warming. So I, I study how those two phenomena affect nitrogen dynamics in my ecosystem. That's cool. And if I understand correctly, uh, if you want to measure nitrogen in the soil and the temperature of the, of the soil, is that what you're measuring? Uh, yeah, so mostly nitrogen. Uh, we do uh, record the temperature, um, but the big thing I'm looking for and the stuff I tease apart is the nitrogen. And how do you how do you measure nitrogen in the soil? Yeah, so there's um some pretty complicated analytical techniques, but really what I do is I I I add nitrogen to the soil in a known amount, um, and then I let it I let the soil microorganisms work on it over certain periods, so the growing season, uh, or over winter, something like that, and then I take I take the soil out at the end of that season, and I can use an elemental analyzer. Uh, to quantify the amount of, let's say, nitrate in the soil. And uh, so I can compare that to initial readings, like initial known amounts. Okay. I will maybe ask you where to backtrack a bit. I, I do not have um, a lot of knowledge about nitrogen cycling. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Where it comes from and how does it deposit in soil and or where it goes after that? Yeah. So... Nitrogen enters an ecosystem um, mostly through biological fixation. So um, plants can have associations with bacteria and uh, free living bacteria or microorganisms in general in the soil can also fix nitrogen. So that's the main way. But uh, there is also an amount that comes from the atmosphere that gets uh, deposited. And that has been increasing uh, pretty drastically since uh, the start of the Industrial Revolution. So now we're seeing more and more nitrogen being pumped into the atmosphere and then eventually making it de like depositing in rain, snow and dust if it gets dissolved uh, and ending up in the landscape that way. So those are your main ways nitrogen enters a terrestrial ecosystem. And then once it's in the terrestrial ecosystem, um, typically, you know, microorganisms get the first go at it. Um, they take it up and they they have a short lifespan so they can take it up and, and uh, deposit it quickly. And also when they break decomposer organisms, when they break down organic matter, they also give up a lot of nitrogen available to the plants. And then the plants can take it up um, and short-lived plants especially will die at the end of the season and the, the nitrogen will go back into the soil. So that's kind of how it gets cycled inside the system. Um, and then 
it can also be lost from the system. So especially if organisms uh, have too much of it, it can get dissolved in water and lost to groundwater or runoff. Uh, and it can also be lost uh, through gaseous emissions that make it back to the atmosphere. So that's kind of how nitrogen enters cycles and leaves a system. And why is it important to study nitrogen in the soils? Um, so it's it's a, well, especially in regards to plants, in temperate ecosystems, uh, terrestrial ecosystems especially, it's typically the limiting nutrient for plant growth. Uh, so it, it has a big impact on productivity, so how much solar energy is get converted to chemical energy, plant processes, stuff like that. Um, and it can also affect uh, ecosystems in other ways, uh, again, based on limiting nutrients. So it's important to know uh, how much is in the system uh, to know how productive the system is going to be. And it's also important to know how it leaves the system and, it, and if it can affect uh, other ecosystems like aquatic ecosystems and stuff like that. Okay, no, that's cool. And so you're studying a very specific system. You mentioned the system being a transition between uh, agriculture field and a forest. Yeah. And why did you choose this specific system? Uh, well, so this kind of system is is dominated by grasses. So grasses can be very useful in studying field experiments. So, um, you know, they're short-lived, they're, they're kind of small in stature. So you can manipulate them pretty easily um, and, and, you know, get some solid results based on that. Other ecosystems, you know, might, it might be hard to access entire plant organisms. You know, it, it's hard, you can't really, you know, study whole trees with like it would cause a lot of damage. So um, it's very convenient to do field experiments in this kind of ecosystem. And, and grasslands are very uh, globally relevant as well. Um, so, so grasslands can be, are typically the most prevalent terrestrial ecosystem. They, they cover most, the most area uh, globally. So they're also globally, globally relevant as well. Um, so this is like making me think about, you mentioned that uh, you're studying nitrogen because in partially it's with soils are getting more nitrogen like from the atmosphere. Um, and I was wondering, you're, you're studying ecosystems that used to be used for crops, but now they're not used for crops anymore. And I am wondering what have you discovered about the changes on nitrogen in a system that used to be a crop and now is not a crop anymore versus an ecosystem that never was a crop or is like a native forest or something like that. Do you analyze those differences? Um, so there are a lot of differences with stuff like that. Um, a lot of it has to do with like soil structure um, and like some soils can get really degraded over time if they're cultivated and stuff like that. One, it is interesting because if you leave a farmland for long enough, it'll more or less turn in, turn back into a pretty, pretty, uh, for lack of a better word, like natural ecosystem. So um, I don't personally look into stuff like that. Um, but one thing, that is relevant to farms and non-farms is the amount of nitrogen. So when I study something like a farmland that gets nitrogen added all the time, I can compare that to an ecosystem that doesn't, like farms get fertilized, you know, other ecosystems don't. So that, I definitely tease apart those kind of interactions. Um, 
now that's that's more of like a like a human induced problem as opposed to just it being farmland versus not so um when you start adding nitrogen for prolonged periods of time then stuff definitely does happen so i so i definitely look into that if that if that's something you, you want me to talk about so what kind of stuff that's happened then if you yes. stop adding nitrogen so so like i said nitrogen is typically the key limiting nutrient in terrestrial ecosystems. So you add nitrogen and, and plants grow bigger and there's more productivity, so it's really good. But what happens is if you add nitrogen for long periods of time, eventually you can oversaturate the system and you can make it so there's more nitrogen supply than demand. And so this is considered a nitrogen saturated ecosystem. So when ecosystems become saturated with nitrogen, uh, microbes and plants can no longer recycle it. And that's when you start getting these detrimental effects because all the nitrogen that's extra gets lost uh, into water and through, and through gaseous emissions. And, and again, with and an, I, another aspect I study is climate warming. So when you start losing nitrogen in the form of uh, gases, you start getting lots of nit nitrous oxide in the atmosphere. And, and nitrous oxide is a horrible greenhouse gas. So um, so yeah, you definitely you definitely get some bad side effects when you start uh, adding nitrogen for long periods of time. So what is the solution then? Should we reduce reduce our agricultural intensity to reduce the amount we put in soil? Or yeah, so that that's definitely um, a big takeaway from a lot of this research. So nitrogen can be lost through those ways I talked about, but can also be lost through the removal of plant biomass and microbial biomass. But specifically plant biomass. So, so farmers will take a lot of that nitrogen that's stored in plants and, and remove it from the ecosystem and, you know, ship it and people eat it. So there is losses of nitrogen. Um, so we do need to fertilize uh, cropland still to get the, you know, the quantity and quality of food we're used to. But um, we definitely don't need to fertilize it to the, to the severity that we are. Like we have way too much of it typically. Just to go back uh, to more specifically to your research, I would like us to walk you through how, which experiments did you do and how did you manage to co uh, to gather your data and analyze it? Okay, so yeah, so a big novelty of my research in general is this idea of short-term versus long-term. So I have, so at my field site, there was plots established 16 years ago with these warming and nitrogen addition treatments along with controls sorry when you when you say warming what do you mean so we so some of the plots so like there's nitrogen addition there's warming there's combined and then there's control so the ones that get warmed we warm with overhead heaters so we have a heater infrastructure set up over the plots that actually warm the soil about you know two to three degrees so they get experimental warming um, and then some plots are fertilized and all these all these treatments are crossed with controls. So we have a set of these plots that were established 16 years ago. And we have a, a several plots that were established three years ago with the same treatments. So this, this gets us nitrogen and warming as treatments, but it also gets us this short versus long-term uh, comparison. So that's my field site. So, so in each of the plots, I have these soil cores which are just tubes that have 
resin at the ends of them that stop contamination from entering the cores and, and, and stop good stuff that I'm looking to quantify from leaving the cores. So I, I put those in the ground for four months at a time. I fill them with the soil and I stick them in the ground and I let the soil microbes work at it. So by comparing the soil at the start of the incubation to the same soil at the end of the incubation, I can see how much nitrogen gets mineralized by the microbes. So that means from so microbes will break down organic matter to get energy and also nutrients, and they'll leave some of those nutrients available for plants. So I can study, I can quantify how much nitrogen is actually becoming available over those, those time periods. So that's, that's how I study mineralization using the soil core technique. And I can also analyze the bottom resin that I was talking about, and that'll show me how much nitrogen is getting leached out of my core. So how much nitrogen gets dissolved in water and, and travels downwards through the core. So the soil core is how I, how I study mineralization and leaching. So I, so that's one method. And I also use a stable isotope tracer to study the retention of nitrogen in soil. So using, so I, we fertilize with ammonium and nitrate. Those are two nitrogen compounds and we can actually label the nitrogen in those compounds with a different isotope. So N15, as opposed to the lighter isotope N14. So we can, and we, and we add it to the soil in the form of fertilizer. So we can, so after we add that isotope after the growing season, we can take plant and soil samples and analyze them and see how much of that labeled isotope, the N15 is actually in the plant matter and in the soil matter. Um, because the natural abundance of nitrogen N15 is very low. It's about a third of a percent. So when we add like a fair amount, like one gram, I believe it's one gram per meter squared, uh, we can really pick up on that. We, and we can really distinguish it from natural stuff. So we, so we're using a stable isotope, we can also study retention of nitrogen or, or how well it's cycled in that system and, and retained. Cool. So if I understand correctly, you have something like a molecule that has a type of label that I don't know if it's like a color or something like that, <laughs> like a radioactive, well, oh, whatever, nice, yeah. like, yeah, you have like a molecule that you can track and then you can uh, look for it and know where it was stored uh, in the plants or in the soil. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So are you able to see those molecules actually getting into the plants? Yeah, so, yeah, because we can, if you look at a plant that, that doesn't have that molecule added to it, it'll be, you know, 0.33%. But if you look at a plant and all of a sudden, you know, it's like 5% or something, you know that all that extra is from your, from what you added. So that's how you, that's how you kind of see where it ends up. Now you don't, you can't like totally track the, like the formations and transformations and whatnot, but you can see where it ends up uh, at the end date. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, if I understand well, you add a certain amount, you know, the amount you, you added into your system and then you can, at the end of your result, you can say, okay, 50% went into the plant, another 30% went into the soil, 10% got leached out. Is that, is that correct? Or That's, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. And those do those isotopes have any effects on the on the plant or on the like the the fact that you're labeling them? Does that have uh, any effect on your system? 
So I'm going to say no uh, to answer this question. There are very minute effects, nothing bad, but just like certain molecular processes will favor lighter isotopes over heavier isotopes just based on like like very minute like energy costs and stuff like that. So like it, it's not harmful or, or good or anything, but there are very minute like changes, but it's it's nothing that you would ever even notice really. You, so like to answer, there are there is natural abundance work that could pick up on it, but like to answer this question, I'm just gonna say no. And so what are the result the and so what are the results you found? So I'm not done yet. I uh and I'm just starting to collect my samples for my tracer work. So that work will actually I'll be sending it off soon. So we don't do that, we don't do mass spectroscopy work where in my lab, so we have to send that off. So that can determine the ratio of, of isotopes in samples. So it can tell you how much is like N14, for example, and how much is N15. Yeah, so it separates samples by mass. And the so there is small mass differences in those molecules. That's what that's what like labels them. So um, I'm expecting the um, I'm expecting plots that, that are warmed to have to retain the nitrogen better. Um, and I'm expecting fertilized plots, especially in the long term, to retain it less. So again, these effects, any any of the plots I expect to be unsaturated are not going to retain the nitrogen as well. And it, it's going to show up in low amounts. And then warmed plots, um, non-fertilized plots, I'm expecting it to retain more. Why? What is the mechanism behind temperature and nitrogen retention then? So it's all bit, a lot of the nitrogen work is based on this idea of nitrogen saturation. So when, mm -hmm. when nitrogen is still limiting nutrient in the ecosystem, the microbes and plants are going to grab it up right away and use it. They're going to hang on to it. But as soon as it becomes so available that they don't, it's not the limiting nutrient, then they're not going to bother with it. And it's going to, it's going to, you know, be available in the soil to be lost in water. It's going to dissolve more. Um, and then you also find some of it in trace gas emissions and stuff. So does higher temperature make the nitrogen more available? So yeah, um, so warming is very complicated, but, and there's a lot of nuances that can happen, but yeah, if, if warming typically, especially in the short term, warming can increase the growing season of plants, uh, reduce the time soils remain frozen, um, and increase productivity and stuff. So when plants grow bigger, they have more nitrogen demands, and so they'll use more of that. So another aspect of my research I can talk about is um, the fact that I'm doing both these long-term and short-term experiments in the same area in the same year. So in both space and time, they're the same. Um, and that's because years can vary with uh, environmental conditions like precipitation and temperature. So so it, it's, it gets really complicated because um, warming can increase the growing season and, and make plants grow and, and also it quickens the start of green up. So if plants have a quicker time to green up and deacclimate to the cold really early, that's typically good because they have more time to grow and, and be productive. But what happens is if they deacclimate too early and then we have like a late spring frost or something, that could really damage the plant. And a lot of the plants could die off and there could be a less productive year. So in some years where you're warming, you'll actually have less productivity and, and less nitrogen retention. 
but if you have a year without a late frost and the plants just have a quicker start and a better go at it, then they're going to grow more and retain more. So, so there are variations based on the year. So it's hard to predict beforehand what the year is going to look like. But uh, the good thing about conducting both my short-term and long-term experiments in the same year is that whatever happens to one will happen to the other. Can temperature be detrimental, like too warm? will start being like affecting how the nitrogen uh, is being incorporated? Yeah, um, typically warmer is better, typically. But then again, like if if it's getting warm for a long period of time, eventually research has shown that plants can stabilize in their productivity and their plant biomass. So eventually they'll get to a point where they're like, it's the maximum and then and then warming can have detrimental side effects. I was imagining, to follow up on Laura's question, I was imagining like in peak summer where you have heat wave, but the extra heat treatment may dry off some of the, some of the plants, so you add more dead biomass into your system. Do you know if that's affected or is it already, it's not a concern of yours because it's not a big temperature difference? So that definitely can happen. One thing about my system is it's dominated by cool season grasses. These aren't like your typical warm season Canadian grasses, these are um, in, introduced species. So yeah, they, they are specifically susceptible to warmer temperatures, um, but this, this happens like later in the season. So um, a lot of this stuff I do before those, like the tracer experiment, I get my plant samples before, um, like at the time of peak biomass, which is when I think before any of this that like detrimental stuff is gonna happen. So I do try to, so yeah, it definitely can happen. And I try to get all my samples before that happens. Same with the soil, it, uh, the soil cores. So my my other experiment besides the tra tracer experiment, um, the first round is over the growing season. And again, I try to collect my soil samples before any of these, these heat waves affect it. But then I also do it two more times to get a snapshot of the, of the entire year. So those effects might show up in the, in the later in incubation. So I do three incubations, one over the growing season, one, you know, from July to November before the snow covers, and then one from over winter, so winter to early spring. So I will, I might see those in the, those later incubations, but um, I try to avoid in the, the earlier ones. That's super cool. And now I'm wondering, how did you get to study uh, soil, uh, nitrogen in soil? Like, what did, what was the driver for you to uh, be interested in this topic? Yeah, so in my undergrad, I actually studied purely chemistry, organic chemistry, um, in in the medicinal and, and organic chemistry lab at Nipissing University, and we looked at we did look at nitrogen compounds. There's a molecule base called indole, which is common in a lot of medicines, and uh, we actually synthesized novel indole core molecules. So I, I was really into chemistry in my undergrad. Um, but off, off on the side, I also had a passion for plants. So when I was done my undergrad, you know, I had spent some time doing chemistry, so I was familiar with it. And I also wanted to branch off into plants. So I looked into research, potential research at different schools. Um, and that's when I saw my supervisor's work and it kind of, uh, coupled both my, like my passion for chemistry and plants together. So that's that's what first drew me to my the research is the research was happening in this lab, 
and I was really interested in it. Now, once now my supervisor already knew this, but what I started to quickly realize is that when you study these terrestrial ecosystems, so let's say plants, for instance, um, there's a very intimate relationship that happens between the above ground, so what you know what you see and what you what people think of when they think of plants. Mostly, there's an intimate relationship between the above ground and below ground. So if you really want to dive into these questions about terrestrial ecosystems, you can't um, neglect the soil. The soil is very important, and you know. So so I wanted to study plants, I wanted to study chemistry, but soil is so important, and um, I wanted to to dive into this question of the whole system. So yeah. So just to finalize, I would like to know, like you're in your second year masters, but. Uh, what do you foresee for the future? Do you want to keep studying uh, plants, soils, and chemistry, or you would like to change topics, or what do you expect uh, after your master's? Or is yeah, it too soon to ask? <laughs> no, I, no I, I think about it a lot, especially recently. So um, I wanted to talk about kind of what I've been doing, but uh, so to answer your question, I'm going to definitely double down on the plants and chemistry. I've actually been talking about with my supervisor and working on rolling up to the PhD, so, so I'm in my second year master's, but I don't know, you know, if I'll finish because I might uh, change into PhD. And in my PhD work, I do want to continue with plants. Um, but our Canadian grasslands, you know, our, our native grasslands here in Canada are the, the prairies. So we don't have these, these the grasses you walk on and the typical Western student walks on is not the native grasses to our land. So I do want to study grasses, but I do, I have been switching into this idea of prairies, prairie ecosystems, as opposed to these old fields. Um, I do still want to study chemistry. So I'm looking, I'm looking at nitrogen, uh, but one thing the prairies love is fire. So, so nitrogen can interact with all these other stuff, warming, precipitation, uh, fire, and stuff like that. So I am going to continue studying nitrogen, but I'm going to see what else it can interact with, specifically fire. Um, and I'm going to look at that in the praise in my PhD. So that are, that is my plan. Yeah, that's cool. That seems you already have a good idea pro uh, project going on. Uh, if I can ask a bit more question on, the, on your fire project. Uh, when we talk about fire, I think more about forest fire. And I didn't imagine that uh, prairie fire will be potential or potentially an, an issue is is it something that happened very often yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a good thing so um so if you think about plants plants that are herbaceous it means they die down in the ground every year um and you compare those with woody species that most of the above ground stays intact now some trees leave their trees lose their leaves but you know most of that infrastructure is retained over the winter so woody species are, are just going to have a better foothold on nutrients and resources than herbaceous species. They just have a, a much easier time. So, so woody species can actually be extremely detrimental to prairie and grassland ecosystems. They can really take over the ecosystem and change it. So, so uh, historically, prairies were burnt to maintain them, and that really helps push back woody and invasive species, um, and, and it actually really benefits the, the native plants, your flowers and your grasses. So fire, yeah, so fires are bad for forests, but forests are bad for prairies. So fire is good for prairies. That's cool. Last question before wrapping up because we are getting out of time. If someone wants to uh, ask you more question or follow up or get uh, some more information, how they can join you? 
Yeah, so I, I, I'm too busy. I, you know, I'm a grad student, so I don't have too many social medias. But if anyone you know, ever wants to talk to me about anything, the best way to reach me would be my University of Western email. So it's bsorio at uwo.ca. Uh, and I, I am in the grad directory. So uh, if you're interested, that's the way to find me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys so much. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Clabotini, and my co-host was Laura Monios. And we've been talking with Benjamin Soriol. And this episode was produced by uh, Laura Munoz as well. If you would like to be involved with the show and get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also uh, find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on our podcasts like Podbeam, iTunes, and Spotify. Attentively, selected podcasts have been uploaded on YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.